0: Bienvenidos and welcome to the jacobin sports show i am your host as always matthew miranda coming to you on a very exciting late april day it was quite the day yesterday in my world of sports i don't know what was going on with you people and all of your sports but yesterday in the afternoon i sit down and watch manchester city football club take arsenal i don't know there's so many actually that i think about i was about to use the like a sports metaphor for when one team dominates the other and then i realized that they're almost all like unpleasant like there has to be a better metaphor for one team severely outplaying the other than you know bend them over hit their knee took them behind the woodshed like there's a lot of violence. Uh, I find even when I write about uh, recaps of games, it's so easy to slip into the language of war and violence and domination, and I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to say that Manchester City, from minute one through minute 95, without a time, thoroughly dominated Arsenal. And I'm finding that like as I get older, I, I will... it's the same as when I'm a kid. There's always a reason to be anxious about everything. So... City have been in one of their typical late-season forms where they just cannot lose a game. They now are without a loss in their last 17. If you remember, a couple years ago, uh, when they were fighting with Liverpool to the end, they won their last 14 games in a row to win the league by a single point. Um, Last year also ended on a great run. City tend to do this, especially under Guardiola. And they've been doing it this year now for a while as well. And so, of course, my anxiety after Arsenal had dropped, I believe, six points maybe from three games. I think Arsenal drew three games in a row. And their form is not, you know, obviously their form has been, been lousy and every single metric indicated Arsenal is slipping and City are peaking. So when they meet, obviously, in Manchester, those two trends will just continue. And I never feel comfortable with that because all Arsenal had to do was tie the game. and And it would have been interesting. Like going forward, City would still have the advantage, but not a big one. And you have to assume at some point, Arsenal will start winning again. So to watch Manchester City from the very beginning of the game just outplay the Gunners completely across the board. Watching Erling Holland, who didn't score until pretty much the very last, easily could have had like four or five goals. It was astonishing. He was in as good a form as he's been in all year, and he just happens the record for the most goals in a season. So when you're saying he's in the best form he's been in, that is something. Kevin De Bruyne, I would say he's the best player in in English football. He is on the short list of the best players in the world, and he was doing it again yesterday. And it was so it was very it was a very pleasurable first course in my sports day because what I was waiting for with even more anxiety because even if City had lost, there's still time for them to win. But at night, the Knicks were playing Game Five in Cleveland with a chance to win and advance in the playoffs for the first time in 10 years, and only the second time in the last 23 years. So I do not take anything for granted with the Knicks, even though, just like City and Arsenal, over the course of their series with Cleveland, the Knicks have pretty much, other than one game, they've been on top the whole series. Often by like around 10 points, everything points to, oh, the Knicks are better, and the Knicks in the regular season, they won three out of four games against Cleveland. This series, they won the first three out of four games against Cleveland. I was convinced they would lose last night, which is not a radical thought, I and mean, it really wasn't even about the Cavaliers or the Knicks. If you watch enough playoffs, and it was the case, again, certainly last evening, it's the hardest game is to put a team away for good. And you saw last night, the Lakers were up 3-1 to in Memphis. They could not close them out. The um, Who's the other one that I'm thinking of? Oh. Christ. Someone else going to put someone away? Up 3-1. to one. Oh, the Celtics were up 3-1 to one on Atlanta at home. Couldn't put them away. It's hard to put a team away. And Cleveland, like Arsenal, has been scuffling enough that you're thinking like, okay, they're not going to go out like this. Like, they're going to bounce back. They're going to play their best game. You're going to have to take that punch. Again, violent language. You're going to have to take that best effort from them And so I wasn't anti-Knicks because I was anti-Knicks. It just seemed like it's a safe bet to say that they won't pull it out. So I was very anxious because if you lose game, this is where now the Celtics are. This is now where the Lakers are, especially. If you're up 3-1 to as the road team, especially, and you lose game five, you're still up 3-2, to and you're coming home. You still have the advantage. But if you're down like four or five points at the half, you and the whole building have to start thinking about, you know what? If we lose this one too, we've blown the two opportunities to end the series. We've given them hope. We've given them momentum. Now we have to go to a game seven where anything can happen. And if we lose that game, what a collapse! Because NBA teams never lose three nothing leads and they practically never lose three to one leads. So there can be an odd amount of pressure on a team up three to one in a series where. You better close this out now, or you may not get a shot again to to do it. And the Knicks thankfully did. So my sports day was literally from 3 p.m. until about 10 p.m. Just one roll of ecstasy after another through my body, through my head. Just it was beautiful. It was really, really great. Uh we have a guest coming on today's episode. She should be with us in about five or ten minutes. Um, so while we wait for her to arrive. Let me talk about a few other things in the world of sports outside of what I just mentioned. Uh, First, I want to shout out, we have a new subscriber on our Patreon from down under, from Australia. Our friend RR, I will call them. um, I don't know if they want their business all over the internet. RR subscribed. RR sent a very lovely message, um, which got me thinking about, because RR is now subscribed to the... clyde fraser tier of patreon subscribing which entitles them to ask a question to have answered on any episode and they haven't asked too many questions yet but they turned me on to like some of the issues going on in australian sports which is really interesting because i was literally just yesterday talking to my sister who when she was young my sister was like a world traveler and always wanted to Australia was like the one place she always wanted to go she was fascinated with for all these reasons and she was telling me last night like she really has no desire anymore to go to Australia because I wasn't aware of some of the political energies in that country especially what sounds like a growing insularity uh, a growing problem with um, aboriginals a growing problem with just foreigners she was telling me I have to look more into this but it sounds like there's like anti New Zealand bias in some ways and so rr was telling me also about some of the issues going on that sounds similar to american sports certain things that uh the australian rules football has and a system that's similar to the draft and um just a lot of ugliness and things going on so i think the Jacobin sports pod is going to expand at least a tiny bit to consider more of these international questions not because i think we're all going to become giant cricket or rugby fans but because Sports is a global business. If you watch the NBA, you recognize like the last couple of years, the NBA does not consider its chief competition the NFL. If there is a sports that the if there is a sport that the NBA sees as its greatest competitor around the world, it's soccer. And the NBA, a lot of the changes they've made in recent years, if you look at pace of play rules, reducing timeouts, cutting commercial breaks, that's not because they suddenly give a shit about your experience as a viewer. That's because soccer plays two halves with basically zero commercial interruption. And it's the only sport that has a run like that. And it's the most popular sport in the world. So, of course, the NBA didn't want any more last two minutes of games that take 10 minutes. On a global level, why would that appeal to anyone when you already have this beautiful game that flows for almost an hour nonstop? Look at Jersey. Is the NBA adding now? I mean, that's also just blatant commercialism. But trust me, the day is coming where the NBA, like major leagues, like, sorry, professional soccer around the world, you're not going to see jerseys that have New York or Boston or, you know, Phoenix on the front. You're going to have logos like world soccer does. So I think it's important to, to investigate a bit more some of the things that are going around the world in other leagues and other sports because. at at least on a business level, but also on I think what it says about how the very rich view and treat the lesser rich is important to know, not only as American sports fans, but as people living in a late stage capitalist society where between climate chaos and concentration of wealth, you really better pay attention to how these people treat everyone else around the world because it's coming for us probably sooner than not. So I wanna thank RR for joining the show. Um, want to point out a few interesting things going on in some of the other series right now in the NBA. The Boston Celtics, I was convinced that series would be done in four or five games. Uh, Celtics lost game five at home on a pretty much butter, butter, <laughs> pretty much buzzer beater from closer to midcourt than the three point line. Trey Young. And as a Knicks fan, and if you're a Sixer fan, you've seen it before. Welcome to the family, Boston. This man in the playoffs, you don't want to mess with this man. Even when he struggles, you don't want to mess with this man. And Trey Young did it, hit the pull up about a 35 foot three, maybe farther. Now the Hawks go home for game six. All they have to do, I mean, not easy. They still have to beat the Celtics, which is not easy. The Celtics are a much better team. But if the Hawks can win a home game, there's a Game 7 in Boston, and all the pressure in the world is going to be on the Celtics. So that series is getting interesting. The Lakers, if you saw them play last night, it's a little worrying to me because the Lake. I mean, again, it's hard, obviously, to put a team away. Memphis is very talented. Memphis was at home. Presumably, John Morant is getting healthier and better with each game. It's not that the Lakers lost that concerns me. It's that they got just pummeled late, and I worry that that's indicative of an old, tired team that basically laid down and said, okay, like, we won the games we had to, Um, we'll go back home and close them out in game six. You would not expect that from a LeBron James team, but it's not always about, sometimes we, we act like athletes are frozen in amber. LeBron James is not 28 years old anymore, and like, just, you know, a perfect human Body and will that can summon the energy to do whatever he wants. He still has the brain to do it and he still has the physical gifts to mostly do it. But if you've watched LeBron James this season, LeBron James is not the same player, obviously, 20 years into his career as he was even five or 10 years ago. That's okay. He's still better than 95% of the league, but it's a little concerning because his team is going to follow his lead and. For the Lakers to lose by 17 on the road, Memphis now has confidence. Memphis has a little momentum. If you've ever watched the Memphis Grizzlies play, this is not a team that needs any encouragement to think that they're really good. So the Lakers, they better win in game six, or they might find that they let someone off the hook that they should not have. I'm going to stop with the NBA NBA talk for the moment because I want to introduce our guest and get into this, fortunate episode. This is a very exciting episode for reasons that I will make clear to our audience very soon. Um our guest. So the whole point of today's episode I think is that as I was saying before, you know one of the directions I want to take the show in is to look more at international sports because there are reasons that I think it gives us a more rounded understanding of our own fandom as Americans. I also think that when we talk about sports often we we assume that the discussion is strictly towards professional leagues and I think just as you know music is not just popular because of concerts Art is not just popular because of museums. Like Our relationship and our love for these mediums is much more personal and local than that. It's the same thing with sports. Anyone who loves sports, it probably didn't start when you were 25 and you turned on the TV and decided to follow the pros. You were in it from the time you were a kid. Um, and youth sports is where so much of everything gets established. So I want to spend um, some more time also going forward talking to people who are immersed in the world of sports, but not necessarily because you're going to know them on a national level. Um, and in that vein, today's guest, um, so many accolades. I could spend the whole show just on her accolades. Today's guest is a former member of the United States Under-14 Youth National Team in soccer. She played four years of Division One soccer at St. Bonaventure University, has been coaching Division One soccer now for eight years. Did I just say she played eight years? She played four years of Division One soccer has been coaching eight years, is currently first assistant at Kennesaw State University in Georgia. She has been a staff member on multiple Olympic development program regional and state teams, and is currently the goalkeeping director for the Georgia Impact in Canton, Georgia, where she lives, with her lovely fiancé, Ryan, and their possibly even lovelier dog, Lily. (laughs) Welcome to, and I, I should say, as I welcome Christina, Sorokin do I have that right Is it? you Sorokin? got it
1: you got I, it Matt. yes <laughs> While I
0: welcome Christina Sorokin to the show I will also point out to the audience Christina Sirokin has a special place in my history <laughs> because in my the very first athlete that I ever interviewed for a piece that was published was Christina Sorokin when she was I don't even know how old it was 13. like how old are you
1: I I think I was 13 years old at that time just going into high school and I'm a late I'm a late birthday in November so
0: Okay yeah yeah so so I always remember th- that interview because it was it was the first one I did I was very excited for it I had my That's little awesome. tape recorders with me and that the day that we interviewed was the last day of the Major League Baseball season and it was the last day that the Mets were ever playing at Shea Stadium they were going to tw- tear the stadium down And a friend of mine was like, you can't do this interview. You're going to miss the game. Like, you have to do the game. And I'm like, "And I'm very superstitious as a fan. Like, I'm the kind of fan who, like, if I'm in a seat and my team is good for five minutes, like, I am not leaving that seat. So I'm like, no, I. you know what? I trust them. I feel, because the Mets have been losing the whole end of the year. I've been watching them. I'm going to skip the game. I'm going to do the interview. And that way, I'm being responsible and the Mets will win. The Mets did not win. (laughs) But... The interview was worth it. I'm very <laughs> oh, glad. <I'm>
1: glad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I definitely I would not have wanted to sit home and watch the Mets lose anyway. So, thank you for that. You're um, so
1: welcome. I'm I'm uh, I'm glad. I'm honored. It was awesome and uh this is super cool. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Very glad to have you here. So, I want to um really just ask some questions getting the sense of your experience um growing up in soccer and as you advance through different levels because we always get, I think, as fans who, who predominantly follow the professional levels, there are just certain stories that you're used to hearing, like, sports goes this way for people, and it doesn't. Yeah. Like, right. sports takes people in a lot of different directions in life, Yeah, and I'm very curious in how you started where you did and ended up where you did. So first, yeah. I just want to go back to the beginning sure. and ask, how did you and soccer end up meeting, like, in your life? How did that come yeah. about for you?
1: Okay, so when I was a kid, I tried all different sports, and... Um, you know, from, and these are, these are kind of funny, but like everything from like ice skating to, you know, mm-hmm. dance, like most kids do dance when they're, when they're young. And I remember, um, specifically telling my parents after my dance, my first dance recital that I'd never do it again. <laughs> and so, <laughs> okay. yeah, I know. Right. I'm like five years old or whatever. And I'm like, yep, I'm never doing that again.
0: <laughs> if you know, you know, I respect exactly. that.
1: And, you know, up to bowling and, and all these things that, that my parents were, you know, just trying to find my niche. And then my mom actually was like, let's try soccer. And, uh, I always giggle at this, but, um, it, you know, I was getting a little chunky, you know, you, when you're a kid, you got a little chunk and she's like, let's get a run in. So you know, <laughs> off to soccer, we go. And that's where it all started. So I, I definitely thank my mom for for sparking that idea up because neither of my parents played soccer, uh, growing up or anything like that. So it was a brand new sport for our family and yeah. it ended up being that we, something we all got involved in and all fell in love with. So it was a pretty cool journey as a family, not just as an individual. So, um, so started there with the, uh, I was part of the, the North towns um, in North town Wanda, where I grew up North town soccer club. And we were, my very first team was the teal tornadoes um, wow, yes. and yeah. And that's where it all started. I remember um, standing in the middle of the field, watching everybody go by me and my dad being like, you can't just stand there. And um, <laughs> you know, a couple years later, you know, um, I started getting more serious and pretty quickly actually and then yeah. once um, I started to kind of move up in that you know in the club scene um, I I was I started I tried out for the what was then called the um, uh, Niagara it was kiss 98.5 sponsored yeah. uh, like kiss Niagara soccer and that was like oh. our club team and and um, and then that became Buffalo United. And when I was playing with Buffalo United, is when I met um, my goalkeeper coach, who coached me throughout the years. Which um, I know you know, Mike Island. um friend of the
0: pod, Mike Eidland, who was yes. on just a few weeks ago.
1: Exactly. And uh, I'm so my life is, you know, he's got a huge part in my life as a soccer coach, and uh-huh. just as a person. And um, I have him to thank. And he, you know, I just love him so much. And I'm so thankful for everything he did for me. And um, so, you know, kind of fast forwarded there, but I got into goalkeeping and, um, and he found me, he, you know, I was at, you know, club goalkeeper practice and he had just moved to the state yeah, um, and he was like, you know, coaching me and some of the other kids from the club. And he's like, Christina, um, I was 10 at the time. He's like, I really love to coach you you know, uh, just one-on-one if you're interested in that. And he talked to my dad and they're like, yeah, of course. So we, that's how we kind of started. And that's where my career really took off was right from that, Mm -hmm. from that moment. So I have Mike Eidlin to thank for, um, really pushing me in that direction and, and taking a hold of me under his wing. Um, he always called me his protege and I think he always will. Yeah. And, um, we had an amazing, amazing journey together, through about, I think we trained for about, let's see, I was 10 when we started. Um, and then I believe, yeah, about three years later, um, that's when I, when I made that national pool, which, you know, this is a a testament to the hard work and dedication we both put into that thing and getting it going. And just, you know, we would wake up before school in the morning, six o'clock training at Sportsplex, (laughs) um, you know, just, Doing all the things that we could, and he, was, he would pick me up sometimes. If my parents couldn't get me to the fields, he'd come pick me up and, and take me to practice. It's just amazing what he did for me. Um, and I really, again, I wouldn't be who I am without him in soccer. So that, um, that's my journey in my youth. Um, and then, obviously, uh, once I graduated high school uh, from North Tonawanda High, I went to St. Bonaventure University and was there for four years and had a great career there. Um, you know, dodge some injuries and things like that, and playing time as a goalkeeper can always be, um, hit or miss, and you got to kind of, you know, grow up in the position. So that was, a, um, you know, I've got a lot of different experiences, um, and I'm, you know, I'm sure I'll be sharing more of that here today, but, um, but yeah, and then it got into coaching right after I knew that's what I wanted to do. So, um, so yeah, that's my journey. <laughs>
0: so, so let's go back a little bit in your journey. Sure. Um, at what point? or what do you recognize when you're a kid that lets you start to see i'm pretty good at this like i'm not just another kid playing soccer i'm actually pretty good at this
1: yeah um that didn't really click for me until i think mike and i like started training when i was probably about like 11 or 12 because okay. when you're a kid like you're just there you're just having fun you're discovering mm-hmm. you're um you're enjoying i was oh, i'm oh. always always have been, always will be a competitive person. So I think Mm -hmm. my competitiveness drove a lot of that. Um, But I wouldn't say I really, really, truly started to recognize, you know, a turn in, in kind of the serious nature of what I was doing until I was probably like 12 or 13, because it was just getting so real. And I, and honestly, like I'm trying to think back of like a click moment, but um, I can't think of a very super Mm. specific one. I, I would say, honestly, I would even attribute it to when Mike walked up to me and said, "Hey, do you want to like do this thing? Like, do you want to yeah. really start training personally and privately and like, like really going at this thing?" And I'm like, yeah, "Okay, yeah." I think that would I would probably attribute that to my my turning point there.
0: Looking so, you know, at individual attention helped like make it stand out to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So then I'm I'm always curious about this. There there's a point as you continue to develop, especially coming up through probably junior high and high school, mm-hmm. where you know, every athlete who has enough success at some point begins to recognize that this isn't, this doesn't, this isn't necessarily just a game. Like soccer yeah. can become a means to other ends for you. It can become a college scholarship, which is significant. It can become, um, depending on how your career breaks, it could be professional opportunities, Olympic yeah. opportunities. Absolutely. Um, did it? Did that change at all your? approach or love for the game because it's one thing a lot of mm-hmm. people find this in college like like when i went to college i was going to major in music that was my thing mm-hmm. I, I wrote i performed i learned after a couple of years like the fact that i love doing this in my life doesn't mean i want to turn it into a job like it's a very different equation yeah. When, yeah when do you what is it like for you to to transition from it's just fun and i just want to become as great as i can at it because i want to challenge myself and i want to succeed and i want my teams to succeed and then the the day where you're like okay it's not just that it could be other things too is that a challenge to, like do you do you try to keep it a game in your mind do you have to make adjustments because at that level it, it isn't just a game like what is that like for you especially yeah. when you're young
1: yeah so i think that when um when i when i recognized that this was like really what i'm doing and what i'm really serious about i i fell even more in love with um with the whole process, and i my goals immediately changed, and I think that's when I started to recognize like my ultimate goal as a player was to make a national team. like that was my dream. Uh, I was obsessed with the game. um I was just that was my end goal. That's all I wanted to do was like get to that level and get to that that um that next thing. and so mm-hmm. um but i I think that when I'm trying to think of like, you know, I've always loved the game. I always will love the game, but it does become at some point, like almost like a, like a job, you know? And like, it is a job, right? Like, especially Mm -hmm. when you get into the college part of it, especially as a division one athlete, like that is a job. And I will say that when I was, when I got into the college game is when my love for the game, it's hard to say love for the game because I'll always love the game, but like the, it's the grind, the, just the mental part of it. Like it really got difficult and that's where working with college athletes now, like I see it all the time. So, you know, your love for the game, I've seen it dwindle for other people and it breaks my heart. Um, But it definitely is a challenge and it becomes more of not just like, Oh, I'm doing this for like, you know, my, you know, myself and just, I love and you know, it's great and it's fun. It's now, okay. Playing time. And, you know, um, accomplishments and statistics and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it becomes a mental game. Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of girls and, and just, I'm not just gonna say girls, but athletes in general who are going in these directions of the elite soccer, it becomes such a weight on their shoulders, uh, that they sometimes don't have the right, you know, people to help nurture them through that, or even just, you know, it just becomes something more too much of a job that they just start to lose the love of it. And it's, it's it really does break my heart all the time to see that happen.
0: Yeah, I wonder if you can give some insight on that. I coached, I have, sorry, I've taught for years okay. at a Division one school and I've had a lot of D1 athletes. And one thing that I know people cannot appreciate, and this isn't just, well, that kid's going to become a pro, you know, quarterback. So every D1 athlete I have in any sport, Yep. No matter how the school funds it, no matter how popular it is, whatever. These kids have no free time. These kids okay. are up five or six in the morning to start training, start weightlifting, start practice. Their entire schedule is set for them. If they have free time during the day, that's not for athletics. That's when they're supposed to go to like study hall, finish their work. I wonder what your experience, there were two things I'm curious about as you transitioned into a college athlete. One being the adjustment to the competition level, like yep it has to be an enormous jump but also the adjustment to and i think this speaks to like the question of like you love the game but everything else that goes with it did you find as a d1 athlete that it was challenging to adjust to you really you are you are booked all day every day like all the time
1: yeah so the adjustment in the playing level is definitely different like you go from playing club soccer of course you're playing against mostly the best kids in the state or really in your region, but the college level is so much different because you're playing against older, stronger, bigger Mm -hmm. players. And, you know, the game is faster. It's more direct. It's much more physical. So the speed of play is definitely the biggest thing. And especially being a coach, I find um, that is a huge adjustment for our players that come in for their freshman year. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me specifically, it was, um, it was, that we we had a men's team at Bonaventure so it was really cool to play we actually played and scrimmaged against them in one of my first college scrimmages, which, yeah. which was cool because it it totally like opened my eyes to the the level of soccer and you know I'd played at obviously the highest level but it was just just totally different speed um so that's a huge adjustment and then um i'm forgetting your your second part of your question Matt sorry my question
0: didn't... was the, just adjusting to the life of a d1 athlete yes. this, you know
1: yeah so adjusting to that life um you know, I think a lot of it, especially in my experience, so I knew going into college that I wanted to coach. So like my mentality mm-hmm. and I'd already been taking my steps in getting my diplomas and my, uh, my licenses for mm-hmm. coaching. So I had already kind of immersed myself in that. And I knew I had a plan and a game plan. So for me specifically, I was, like school is very important obviously and all that but it my my route was a little bit different where you know i had some teammates in biology or like you know all these these really demanding courses and this course load that was huge for them that was definitely a sh- more a little bit more of a demand on on the academic side and it was a little more struggle for them um but i will say that just transitioning into that type of um you know responsibility and environment like you just have to be so organized. You have to be on top of things. And, you know, like I said, I was, I'm lucky enough that I wasn't like, you know, like buried under my books, but I uh, still had to really dedicate my, my time correctly. I was in study hall, you know, your whole life just starts to evolve around that and then you know you add on six o'clock weights um waking up on time getting there there you know your car's buried in snow and you've got 30 minutes to get to to practice how do you how do you how do you handle that and how do you keep yourself um properly hydrated properly you know your fitness level like all of these things and then on top of it also um you know perform at, at a high level so It's, it's an adjustment. Um, It's, it's, you get thrown into it. So you really don't have a choice other than to just go. And that's another reason why soccer is such a, a tough one for freshmen to come into because we, we go there. We're there August, you know, August one, you don't have, you're there two weeks before school even starts. So it's like, you don't get a moment to even, you know, take a deep breath and go, Oh, well, I don't have soccer today. No, you've got soccer, before Mm -hmm. school starts Mm -hmm. so you're like you're so thrown right into it and it's good and bad because you don't have a choice but to just grind and do it but also Mm -hmm. you're completely overwhelmed so um yeah i mean i think that's you know that it's definitely a big different thing (laughs)
0: let me ask you one more adjustment question then i want to talk to you a bit about your your coaching experience um I cover a lot of NBA, and and people are Mm -hmm. always struck watching the NBA that, you know, a team will – it happens to the playoffs all the time. A team loses a player to injury, Mm -hmm. um, and you're thinking, okay, they're done. And then this other player, anonymous or just not as highly uh, celebrated, gets some opportunity they don't normally get, and Mm -hmm. they come through. And everyone is taken aback, like, oh, my God. And you forget sometimes that every single one of these people is a world-class professional. They can't all get opportunities, but that doesn't mean – that they don't have skills there. And I always right. think about the challenge that it has to be to be a player who from childhood through college mm-hmm. is always the best player on their team. And suddenly you are not. And maybe you're just a fringe player on the team. Mm-hmm. What is it like? I don't know, you know, your hierarchy as a college player at St. Bonaventure, but mm-hmm. in high school, presumably like you're a pretty big fish. Like you're mm-hmm. a, you're a great player. You're going to go play D1. And then like you said, you get to this new level. It's a completely different level of competition and skill is that emotion is that mentally another challenge that you have to deal with where like you have to adjust to i i'm not i have to reevaluate myself because i'm not you know
1: Absolutely. No, that's, that's definitely a a really big thing. So yeah, you go from being, you know, starting every game playing a ton of minutes and club ball and high school ball. And, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, you kind of get thrown back to the bottom of the totem pole. And, you know, for me, like, especially being a goalkeeper um, Mm -hmm. there's only one of us on the field. And so that was a big adjustment of, I came in as a freshman, I had uh, two juniors and a senior goalkeeper over top of me. So there's four of us total. Wow. And so that was a a big adjustment for me because I, not that I, like I had known, like people had told me, you know, Hey, look, you're going to go in and it's going to be a a competition. Like don't think that you're just going to walk in and, and start. But I also had that expectation for myself because I knew nothing other than, well, I'm, I have to be the best. I have to be like, I've always been this expectation of, this is what I'm supposed to be and perform at this level. So there's no other, like in my brain, there was no other option. And so, um, that definitely hit me hard when I first got into college because I started off actually starting, I was playing Mm. and then I, I slowly kind of lost my job because experience takes over for, for once you start, you know, getting into your, not just your exhibition games, but now you're starting to creep closer towards conference games and the competition gets really, really real. And so, you know, experience with a two juniors and a senior goalkeeper that trumps being, you know, even a national team goalkeeper from when you were 13 or 14 years old, you know, and not to say that, you know, I didn't maybe deserve it or whatever. I was working hard for it, but it's just such a different thing. So yeah, definitely, um, a big adjustment as, um, a a player that you know was playing lots of minutes and then all of a sudden had to to for lack of a better word ride the bench a little bit and see what it's like to be that bench player and that wasn't easy for me I'll be completely honest with you I I struggled greatly with that um because I didn't I guess well I will say I didn't have a whole lot of feedback and I and and that was really tough for me because Mm. growing up with such an incredible coach like Mike who not only coached me you know, just him and I goalkeeping, but also was my club coach was also my ODT coach. Like he, I just had this plethora of coaches that were always there for me and always giving me feedback and just like all these things that helped me become who I was. And then all of a sudden, you know, I went into the college ball and it was like, you know, not as much nurturing and not as much care. And you're kind of just one of 30 and Hey, if you're not performing, like, okay. Like that's there. That's, that's a competition. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard mentally. Um, and I didn't really understand a whole lot of why. And then, you know, it just starts to wear on you. And I struggled greatly with just being confident and not, you know, a lot of times my coach would be like, well, you know, we've got another goalkeeper coming in next year. You, you better be ready. And it was just like, okay, well, am I not doing my job? And, and all of a sudden your yeah. brain starts going and you're you're questioning yourself, and you're you're doubting yourself, and I just I just really feel like, and and this will kind of play into what we're going to talk about next. But why I wanted to coach so bad is because I did not want that to happen, and I made a promise. Kind of backtrack here. I made a promise to myself and my classmates also when we were freshmen that we would we would nurture when we're seniors, and we took that very seriously because mm-hmm. we just felt like we didn't have a whole lot of help um, and we weren't really, we were thrown into it for lack of a better phrase. um, When we were were freshmen, we were kind of under the fire. So we made a promise that we weren't going to do that to the kids that were coming up under us. And,
0: Mm. you know,
1: I still think to this day, I have a lot of relationships with those younger players that they appreciate what we did for them. And, and that goes into why I coach. Um, So, yeah.
0: So I'm curious as a, as a coach, because I know as a, as a teacher, when I started at the college mm-hmm. level, one of the early challenges, and like you might have done even more preparation than teachers do because you go through so many licensing classes and mm-hmm. courses and like I did a practicum, but some people just get a degree and they can teach and they, they figure it out on the spot. One of the things that I encountered really early when I started teaching was learning how many of my initial instincts as a teacher tied back to what I had been like as a student and that, that didn't that wasn't gonna work with my kids because they're not me. Um, yeah. yeah, you obviously go through all this training, but is there is there ever a similar moment or challenge for you as a coach where you have to de kind of deprogram yourself? I'm not I'm not the player anymore. That works for me, but maybe that doesn't work for them. Yes. Yeah.
1: All the time. So I love to reflect. I love to go back in my mind of what I did, and I actually will throw my gloves on a lot when I'm coaching my goalkeepers. <laughs> And I'll throw myself back into a training session that I maybe they're not understanding or that's tough for them. Or it's just a topic that I'm like, wait a minute, can mm-hmm. I do this? Because yes. so many times we think, oh, well, I did that. Why is it they struggle with this? You know, why, what's the, what's the big holdup? And then I'm like, oh, wait a second, hold on. Maybe I'm not clear enough. Or maybe I'm, you know, I'm asking them to do something that is a little too much or whatever it may be. And, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I love to throw myself back into things. Nice. And Yeah. Get, get more of a, a hands-on experience to make sure that they are understanding it the way that I, I need them to understand it.
0: You mentioned earlier how growing up you were, you were trying trying a few different things. You did dance, mm-hmm. you did, um, I can't bowling. remember what else. It, bowling, yeah, bowling all probably different, different sports. Things. I imagine yeah. this is a trend that a lot of, so in basketball and in baseball at the mm-hmm. pro level, there's a concern sometimes that despite all the advancements in nutrition and training, and all the science of sports medicine and health Mm -hmm. that there are certain injuries that are occurring more now than they used to and baseball a lot of pitchers have certain kind of arm injuries in basketball you will see players who are drafted who who show you know calcification or, or certain um exposure um conditions that you're used to seeing in older players and one reason for that is baseball players in general now if you show an aptitude that could be turned into something They want you playing baseball, so you're playing baseball all the time. Basketball players play AAU; they play all the time more than they even practice. You sounded like you had a good sense of balance. Do you find in the kids that you're working with today, who are college D1 soccer players, Mm -hmm. do they have in their background like a good sense of balance, or are you ever seeing evidence that there's more and more kids who get put on like a soccer track and like that's what you're doing and stay with it? Yeah, yeah.
1: So I think when you so when they make the switch from just like um like a recreational player into that elite player that's when their track starts and a lot of the times it can be a very young age yeah. and you don't see a lot of balance and okay. one thing that mike did for me that was really cool is he's like let's try something different like for a little bit um and add something in and i played volleyball for a year and that was really cool nice. and okay. um, yeah so i would say I see a lot of elite soccer players, youth soccer players um, very much just on that track of um, being a, a soccer player. And that's it. Mm-hmm.
0: So I will conf- I have maybe three questions left. And I will confess that between you and Mike and myself, I'm probably the least accomplished soccer coach of the three. I have coached <laughs> my daughter's soccer team the last uh-huh. two summers. And last year, they came in first. Um no. But I never played soccer. I'm learning it all. And, okay. and just to, to give Mike just to give more flowers to Mike for how great a coach he is. Yes, I, di- I didn't play soccer as a kid. Like I, I started I had no background with soccer at all until
1: okay.
0: right around the time I met you, that was okay. when I first start, I started watching um, EPL because it was on TV, yeah. and I just fell in love with so many things about the game. So when my daughter wanted to play soccer, I was thrilled because yeah. this was I played a lot of sports as a kid, but I never played soccer. So right. here's my chance to, like, I can get involved. So thank God for Mike. The first year that I coached my daughter, um, she is a very cerebral player. She's not the fastest. Mm-hmm. She's not mm-hmm. the strongest. She's not the best on the ball. But she's the kind of player who, like, she will make a pass where other kids aren't making the pass because she's thinking a step ahead of, like, where yeah. should go. And, and it's sad because sometimes she'll get yelled at by other kids. And I'm like, no, no, she knows what she's doing. Right. So, there was a there was a there was a situation where we kept i'll just i'll just put this out there for mike when i told mike about some of the struggles i was having as a coach like i'm I'm like mike we tell these girls all the time like cut to the middle one of them runs to the side and then nobody cuts to the middle and mike's like how old are they and i'm Mm -hmm. like they're like eight to ten he's like okay and he gives me like a printout mike has printouts of of like the cognitive and like skill level expectation yeah. of every group of students that there is and he yeah. literally like sends me an email he's like here and i'm reading about and i feel like a jackass because i'm like <laughs> like mike's like you can't you, you you can yell at them to center it they're not going to get that like you can't yeah yeah just gonna do that so um this is all just a way of i'm sure mike will listen to this mike <laughs> we both thank you really awesome and thank That's you for really that good. um
1: absolutely. absolutely
0: last three questions for you, um, right. as a coach. What is something that you see in the game or in your kids today that has changed that you're happy to see is different from when you came up?
1: Ooh, good question. I gotta think on that one for a second. Oh.
0: If you don't have an answer, that clearly indicates it's getting worse and that we (laughs) need to be very concerned.
1: (laughs) No, you know. um...
0: And if that's vague, you could take it the other way too. Is there anything that you see in the game or in your kids today that hasn't changed that you wish would or that has changed that you wish hadn't,
1: yeah. So, I think the only thing my brain is jumping to right now, um, is like the mental side of it, and it's a Uh-oh. good thing, it's a good thing that it's changing because I think, okay. like, when we were, I just think that when, like, when I was going through it, like, there was, like, if you had if you're struggling, like, it was just rub some dirt on it type mentality, which is yeah. nothing wrong with that. Like I'm, yeah. I'm a thousand percent still that person. But like, I think now that we're, we're looking deeper into athlete mental wellness and like making sure that they're, I think we're, we're helping the kids mature a little bit more with that kind of stuff because they're understanding, you know, you know, how to deal with stress and how to deal with, little ups and downs and all these things that happen where I think, you know, when I was going through it, it was like, I just, when I had the big down, like I had made the national team. Then the next year I barely made the regional team or I didn't make the regional team. Mm. Like, it was a really bad thing for me. And I like, mm-hmm. like, boom, my, my confidence and everything shot down and I was like ready to quit. And I, I didn't, which I'm glad I didn't cause it, it helped me. But anyways, mm-hmm. um, I think that now we're, we're focusing a little bit more on, they're the the athlete the total athlete rather than just like get out there shut up work hard and do this like it's now what's the culture like yeah. what's the, like we're we're just as coaches we're diving so deeply into how we create a culture and a great foundation for these kids um and how they're and we're paying attention to like if they're their mental part of the game is real. Like it's just becoming a, an extension of like you've got technical, you've got tactical. We've always had mental, but now it's like it's even deeper. Like how are they managing stress? How are they managing the game? How are they, um, you know, responding to to these things? And and it's helping the culture in general. So that's really the the only thing that jumps out to me right now. Um, but I'm sure I would have like a million other answers for you, like. As I go through like the night, I'm gonna be like, oh, I should have talked about this, but um, maybe
0: we can catch up. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we're always happy so. to have you on for a later episode. Thank you, I appreciate um, it. Last question, last question, um, because the first time I asked you this question, you were 13 and you've seen more okay. of the world, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hope and pray that you have grown since then. When I yes. asked you in the first interview who your favorite soccer club was, you said Manchester United. You had a lot of time to see that evil organization tumble into mediocrity. (laughs) Christina Sorokin, is Man United still your favorite soccer club in the world?
1: No, it is not.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Very good. I know Mike, as a fellow Man City fan, would be very proud to hear this. So who is your favorite soccer club in the world?
1: Oh my gosh! I'm gonna be so very honest with you, and Mike's gonna be like so disappointed when he hears this. but I like really don't have one. I'm gonna be so honest
0: honestly, I thought you were gonna say Liverpool, and I was so much more no. worried God
1: not having God.
0: one is much better
1: right <laughs> <laughs> trust me, you know, I have a few friends um that are Liverpool fans, and I know they always they always catch flack for that, so that's mm-hmm. hilarious. Mm-hmm. but um, no, I just I appreciate soccer as a whole, and i i yeah. feel I'll really be honest i I feel like not being from England or just overseas, I can't be a diehard. Like I'm a, I'm going to be honest. My team is the Buffalo bills. I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh. Like, I'm just going to be that person. Like I'm, I'm going with American football here, but um, no, I, I really, I, I love man you and I'll, I'll fight for my myself here a little bit. I love man you when I was growing up because Mike encouraged me to watch soccer and I started and I was like, you know, young and, and, you know, there's Cristiano Ronaldo and there's Tim Howard and there's all these amazing people that I was so infatuated with. And so when you had, um, you know, Giggsy still playing and you had Wayne Rooney still playing on that team back in like 06, I think they won and it was like just the time to be a Man U fan. And so. That's where my love – and that's why you got that answer when I was 13. was I was just like, – <laughs> I had a six-foot poster of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo in my room. Oh, so, wow. there you go. Like, okay. I was obsessed. Okay, um, Okay. You, know you know what? Times change, and and I'll yeah. be honest. I, I love to watch football as a whole and just see, you know, all the different teams. Like, I love Man City. I think they play incredibly. I mean, there's so many play- – and the players move around so much too now. Yeah. I'm like – yeah, so I love that player, and I love this goalkeeper, and I'm like, how do I really have a favorite? So I, I just I'm a big, big, huge bandwagoner, my friend.
0: <laughs> all good. That's all good. And you are probably like the fourth or fifth Buffalo Bills fan who's been on this pod, even though yes. I've never reached out for that. So much respect to Bills country. Woo-hoo! They do mafia. Bill's They mafia do love their baby. team.
1: All the way down here in Atlanta, we've got a ton of fans down here. It's really cool.
0: And they they make their presence known.
1: Oh, we sure do. All they over really the place. Do Uh (laughs) uh-huh
0: well that will be all then for this interview um christina but i'm very grateful that you spent time with us and gave us some insights not only into the life that you had as a player but also i think it's i think it's really good for people to get more insights into the reality of what young athletes deal with today um because we always get through media mostly like you get the the story from the other side and there's Mm -hmm. it's just the tip of the iceberg as to what's actually happening, um, Absolutely. in the world of sports. So, very grateful to you. Um, I will say a lot to you now. I will send you um the link once it's up, so you can check awesome. out the episode as well. Um, yes. but thank you so much for joining us on the Jacobin Sports Show, and perhaps, maybe, fifteen years from now, we'll <laughs> do it again sometime.
1: Sounds great. Well, thank you so much. This is a pleasure, and uh, I'm really excited to be here. And thank you so much. It was great to catch up with you. Hopefully, not fifteen years down the road again. It will be soon. But I we'll hope so. Care. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Great to talk right, to you. you. Take care of yourself. Right. You too. Bye.
0: Right. Bye bye. So that was Christina Sirokin. Um I will give you all her relevant contact info at the end of the episode. I just want to close now by making um one or two more little fourth points from the world uh right before the Christina interview came, I was talking to you about the NBA playoffs and I was mentioning The Celtics and the Lakers. And one more team to watch out for uh, Golden State is now leading Memphis three games to two in their series. After losing the first two games in Sacramento, Golden State has reeled off three consecutive wins. Darren Fox, the Kings' best player, has a, I don't know how they're phrasing it, either a dislocation or a broken tip of the, I believe the index finger of his shooting hand which it's not as perilous as your middle finger. That's really the finger that most shooters rely on, but it's never good to have a a part of your finger fractured or broken in the playoffs when you are your team's best shooter and scorer. So last night was kind of typical of the series, close games, high scoring, high octane, Uh, but when it came down to it at the end, Golden State pulled it out, as you might expect, of the defending champions against a team that, is in the playoffs for the first time as a group ever. Golden State has a chance to close it out at home in game six. If they do, and if the Lakers hold off Memphis, then you're going to get a Golden State versus uh, Los Angeles series, which is in and of itself insane. You're going to get the Warriors against LeBron for the one, two, three, four, fifth time in The postseason sixth, if you count the play in game a couple of years ago, when James it, it, it doesn't technically count as the playoffs, but it is the bridge that gets you there. And in that game, if you recall, James hit a huge long three, uh, in the last I think 90 seconds to give the Lakers the win. So the NBA is looking at a prospective, just dream final eight. If you've got Lakers against the Warriors, Denver and Phoenix is already uh established a matchup in the West in the other bracket, so you've got The top-seeded Nuggets against the most people's favorite in the West are the Suns. This is a series that is so loaded with amazing scores that literally either Chris Paul or Michael Porter Jr. are the sixth-best offensive player in the series, which is insane. Between Nicole Jokic, Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, Jamal Murray, you've got Paul, you've got Porter, um, so much high-end talent. I think logic would say Denver has the edge because the Nuggets' core players, especially, have been together for many, many years, and the Suns have been together for about two and a half months. However, the Suns are pushing that that you know that uh, that theory of continuity is good, but what if the talent is just that overwhelming? The 2008 Celtics. Were a team that literally did not exist before that season, and then they won sixty something games and won the title because Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, Rajon Rondo, Tony Allen, uh, Big Baby, Glen Davis, like they were just so good. The talent overcame the la- the lack of continuity. That's what Phoenix is trying to do. Their case is even more example is even more exaggerated. Because at least those Celtics had you know, a summer and a training camp to get to work together and know each other. The Suns kind of emptied their depth to throw all these guys together in February. And now here we are in late April. And so far, they're making it work. Um, Should be a very, very exciting series. Should be a high-scoring one. Golden State and the Lakers would be really interesting because they're both a little bit older. But... um, like, for example, Sacramento wants to run against Golden State, and Memphis wants to run against the Lakers. But uh, Golden State is a little more adept for that than the Lakers are. But if that happens, that'll be a great matchup, because not only do you have the LeBron Warrior thing, but in all Golden State's championship years, which now this would be the, the ninth season of their run, mostly as title um, competitors, They've never played, really, in a series, not for a very long time, have the Warriors gone up against a dominant seven-footer. Coincidentally, in this series, it's Anthony Davis, and probably the last time they went up against it, it was Anthony Davis way back in the day. That's going to be interesting because, you know, Golden State's often their postseason kind of cheat code is to go small. They put Draymond at center and then they just go small and, and go with a bunch of skilled players and shooters around him, and that's enough. That's tough to do against the Lakers because Anthony Davis is a legit 7-footer. He's at least 4 inches bigger than anyone else that Golden State would have in a small lineup. They're going to have to play Kevon Looney, which is not a bad thing. He's a very good player, but that's not typically how they like to go when they really want to push the tempo. Maybe they'll try it against the Lakers. Would going to be an interesting matchup. In the east, the 76ers are waiting for the Celtics and Hawks to resolve while they do. Joel Embiid, who just can't get a break, um has an LCL injury that he is resting, hoping the Celtics and Hawks drag out as long as they can to give him more time to rest. Um he's been gutting it out. I don't know I don't know what'll happen. Without Embiid, you know, the Sixers without Embiid are an interesting group that isn't going to go anywhere. He um, really would love Philly and Boston play such great games. It would be really, really great if Embiid could be present and generally healthy and effective in them. But LCL is no joke. And as the Knicks get ready to play Miami in a series that I'm not sure I'm emotionally prepared for, because I lived through the 90s, and those series took like 10 years off my life. Um, same issue with the Knicks. Julius Randle. Just in the last game, the clinching game last night, at the end of the first half, he came down on another player's foot. He re sprained the ankle that he badly sprained a few weeks ago that knocked him out for weeks at the end of the regular season. Remember that Randall came back to the playoffs before he had been cleared to do contact drills. Like he, They threw him in because they needed him. And a few games, about a week later, he hurt his ankle again. And with Miami winning last night, the Knicks aren't going to get time off for him to just sit and get better. We'll see what happens in that series. Miami also shorthanded. Obviously, Tyler Hero broke his hand in game one of the first round. He's out the rest of the season. Victor Oladipo had another knee injury. He's out the rest of the season. But if you've got Knicks, Heat, Celtics, Sixers, Lakers, Warriors, and Nuggets, Suns, that's a hell of a second round. NBA will take it, especially as they head very close to their new media rights deal. I think in two years. Last point I want to bring up is from hockey. So the New York Rangers are playing the New Jersey devils. This is a question I have for those of you who are listening, because I never encountered this until I started following English soccer. And it's so prevalent in their press and just in the way that they talk about competition. And I never heard that here. And, but I felt it in game four. So the Rangers won the first two games of the series. Best of seven. First two games in New Jersey, the Rangers won both games 5-1. to one. They're kicking ass. They're taking names. It looks very, very easy. They lose game three. The Devils bring in their kind of backup, backup goalie. Um, Schmidt is his name. And he beats the Rangers in game three in overtime. Okay. Overtime hockey. Shit happens. Game four. The Devils have the lead, and the Rangers tie it, I think, late in the second period. The rest of the game... Oh, wait. Am I thinking about game two? Sorry. Sorry. Reverse that. Back to game three. The game the Rangers lost in overtime. The Devils did not mount a threat at any point in that game until they won. They won 2-1. to one. The, goal they, the, the goal they scored was completely the result of The individual brilliance of Jack Hughes, who's their awesome young um, offensive fire spark, but it wasn't like a beautiful sequence of eight passes. Like it was just Hughes being brilliant and scoring. The rest of the game, until they got the winning goal in overtime, there was not a single instant where I was worried that the Devils were going to win the game. They did not have the Rangers missed so many opportunities, and when the game ended and the Devils lost usually in the past you'd be pissed you'd be like oh I can't believe they," but i found myself thinking like for the first time that i can remember they didn't deserve that win i'm not sure if that question is ever fair to to state they won Who? what, what does deserve have to do with anything we know sports is full of freak bounces and you know vagaries and you know random things at a left field that have an impact and you always have to deal with injuries and attrition and, you know, just the freakish nature of how often sports is determined by a trait somebody was born with that somebody else wasn't, whether it's height or wingspan or speed or hang time, whatever. There's just so many variables that factor into all competition. It would seem to render like they didn't deserve that stupid because and yet, you know, I finished the game and all I could. So I'm curious to those of you listening, you can email the show if you would like to tell us. Sports, at gmail.com. Or let us know on Twitter at Jacobin Sports. Do you believe in the concept of an undeserved win? Or that a team that loses deserved to win? Because part of me feels like there's something very insidious and like capitalistic in that. Very like power entrenchy, Like we deserved to win, meaning what actually happens in reality. There's there's a certain divine right of kings-ishness there that I don't like, but maybe I'm overthinking it. I have been known to do that before. But let me know what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at and Sports. Reach out to our email, Sports at gmail.com. Today's guest, Christina Sorokin, can be found on Instagram and on Twitter at KSU Coach T-I. Uh, She coaches at Kennesaw State, so it's at K-S-U coach T-I. Lastly, has anyone ever told you, dear listener, that you have a face for radio? Do you know what that means? It means they're saying that you're ugly. Are these your friends? Are these the kind of people that you want to spend the precious gift of life with? May I recommend instead joining our Patreon, where no one is too ugly to subscribe, patreon.com slash Jacob and Sports Show. Ask our friend R, R R in Australia. You haven't really felt alive until you have subscribed. Once again, Patreon.com/slash Jacob and Sports Show. That is it for this week's episode. The guest who I told you a few weeks ago, I was super excited to get, and I was just waiting for confirmation. That guest will be on with us next week she'll be interviewing on May 2nd so uh, in the afternoon, so that episode will post on Tuesday, May 2nd, so keep an ear out for that and there may be the most special guest we have ever had in the long, illustrious history of the JSS may also be on in that episode, so just keep your ears open, pay attention to your inbox or however the hell you follow the show thank you for listening and I will see you all soon take care